how is it that 12 followers of a Galilean carpenter can team together with a common message that will ultimately have a global impact and turn the hearts of the nations to God? How is it that a heartless and eager persecutor of a religious sect called Christianity, a man named Saul of Tarsus, who watched over executions and the ransacking of homes in his eagerness to rid the world of such simple and blasphemous people, how is it that one day he would be the biggest champion for that cause that he persecuted so much? How is it that a simple monk by the name of Martin Luther struggling with his conscience and the word of God could speak and cause a great reform to take place in the established church that had lost its way pursuing God in ways that were offensive, disobedient, and self-serving? How is it that insignificant, ordinary, run-of-the-mill people like us can do anything to impact the world and turn the hearts of the nations to God, let alone our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends, and our family members. Friends, we, we look at some of the, the stories in the Word of God. We look at the people that God used, and the reality is there really wasn't too much to them. They were ordinary, simple People And God, because of his sovereign power and purposes, accomplishes his will through them. And we must be careful as we come to the pages of God's word not to see a character in God's word and say, oh, wow, I could never be that person. You're right. You can't be that person. God doesn't want you to be that person. He wants you to be you. And being you is where he wants you to be so that he can work through the you that you are. Really profound, isn't it? But he wants us to be like his son, to pursue that goal, but ultimately he wants you to be you because he works through weak, insignificant, frail people for his glory. So the, the, the answer to the question, how is it that God could use 12 rabble disciples or a persecutor like Saul or um, a, a, a simple monk like like Martin Luther, or, or people like us, the answer to that question is throughout Scripture and in particular in the text that we have before us today that we read. And friends, we need to take an honest look in the mirror of God's Word today to see what God wants us to see, to embrace the guidance, the, the confrontation, the encouragement that it gives us. And we need to bow down and worship the one whom we call Jesus Christ as the, holy, as the Holy One and the only one that deserves our attention and our glory and our adoration. We need to see our lives afresh from His perspective. And in doing so, we will see, as John reveals for us, the evidence that is before us. And seeing all that evidence, He desires for us to believe that Jesus is this Christ, the Son of God. And in believing that, the end result is life eternal and abundant life. Now, there's a caution as we come to this text because this passage of Scripture is very familiar to us, right? This whole story is familiar to us. It's also a familiar story within the culture. Even those who are not followers 
of Christ, those who may have had a little sampling of of God's word probably have heard about the feeding of the 5,000. And so there's some caution that I want to throw here. I want to make sure that we we at least address at this point in time because um, we want to make sure we understand what Scripture is not teaching here, okay? So the first thing is this. This is not a story that presents Jesus as the socio-economical, political savior of the poor, hurting, and downtrodden. Those who want to use Jesus and just kind of wrench him from the word of God to set him up as kind of like this, this reinforcement for their political agenda will present him in this way. This is an example of how Jesus cares for the poor, he cares for the needy, and we should follow that example, and we should see that that is what he is calling us to do, to take care of those who are suffering and hurting and, and, and uh, you know, poor and needy. And, and there's an element of truth there, right? Does Jesus care about those who are suffering? What's the answer? Yes. Should we care about people who are suffering? The answer is yes. But hear this. As you go through the Gospels, you will see Jesus healing and casting out demons and and caring for the poor in a certain sense, but that is always, always, always secondary to the real purpose that he came, and that was to open men's hearts to the beauty and the glory of the salvation that he has to offer and himself as the only one that can satisfy man's hunger. And ultimately, that is what this passage is going to be about. Jesus is far more concerned for the welfare of your soul than man's economic status. You with me there? All right? That doesn't mean, oh, forget about those who are needy. No, it means that we, we, we still do that. But behind that and what's more important than that is the gospel. Because you may give temporary food in a sandwich, which may be helpful, but what you want to give is eternal life. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. Secondly, this is not a story about a boy who was willing to share his biggest lunch and therefore a picture of how we should share what we have with others. Now, let me just kind of just walk you through how this is often used. Oftentimes, we come to this passage and people will see... The, the, the focal point of this story being this boy who came with his five loaves and two fish. It's as if Jesus asked the disciples, well, how are we going to feed all these people? And, and the, the disciples just don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, these, this 5,000 people, and we know it's more than that, probably maybe 20, 25,000 if you add the women and children, there's some different ideas as to exactly how many. The point is there was a mass of people. But it's almost as if viewing it from that perspective that, you know, they don't know what's going to happen, and all of a sudden the crowd just begins to part. And like 300 meters behind is this little boy, and he's walking with his bag of lunch, and he's the only one that thought to bring food, and he's walking up and he's saying, here it is, here it is, I'm giving it to you, as if this boy is the hero of the story. He's not. It is Jesus Christ that is the hero of the story. He is the one that deserves our attention. But that's what often happens when we take the word of God and we just want to find moral examples and things like that. This is about Christ. John is is recording this gospel for us to see Christ. And it's not that the little boy is insignificant. He's part of the story. But it's really not about him. It's about Jesus. So, The reality is this. 
This is a story about Jesus and about how God ultimately meets man's need through Jesus Christ by giving the hungry what truly satisfies. Now, it's also a story about the disciples. It's part of the theme. It's part of the telling of the story. And ultimately, the disciples failing miserably, not knowing what to do. Now, I've entitled this message, Basket Cases. Now, my goal is not, is not simply to be cute. It wasn't like, oh, I'm striving for a cute title here. But see, we, 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 we know this story so well that maybe we have lost the magnitude, and you might even say the craziness of what's going on. I'm using that in a colloquial sense, not in its technical sense, okay? Just think about this. I mean, this story really is crazy. I mean, you might, someone might tell you the story. You've heard it the first time. You're like, man, that's really crazy, right? So just imagine, you know, we're, in, we're down uh, you know, in uh, Santa Cruz, and we're talking there, okay? We're kind of in that kind of a mode. Hey, this is crazy, man, right? All right? So just kind of think along those lines. Some of you live there, so, you know, that's where you're from, and you understand what I'm talking about. All right, so just think about this. It begins with a crazy question. How are we going to feed this multitude of people? All right? It's kind of like, what are you talking about? Right? It's a crazy question. And then there's some crazy answers. Yeah, well, 200 denarii. Well, that's not much. Oh, five loaves and, and two fish. <laughs> right. That's really going to help. I mean, just crazy answers. Then, then there's this crazy miracle. What Jesus does with this, this little bit of food is absolutely incredible. And then there's this crazy leftovers. I mean, they're just over and abundant. It really, it really is an incredible story, but it even has a crazy finish here because this crowd wants to take Jesus and make him king. It's just, it's just crazy. And, and I ask the question, I wonder what the disciples are thinking as this is all unfolding. Well, what we have here then is John presenting to us evidence about Jesus that he is our ultimate provider and he supplies ultimately what we need, what matters, and what really matters is himself. <laughs> he is providing himself as the solution. He's providing himself as the answer. He's providing himself ultimately as the bread of life. Now, a little bit of background here. Let's read verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, just, just in a kind of a passing note here, the emphasis in the Gospel of John is not on chronology, but on sequence. There's a lot of stuff that took place before or between what we looked at in chapter 5 and what we're looking at here in chapter 6. If you go to the other Gospels, you'll find that. John here is presenting evidence, right? He is presenting it more thematically, it is somewhat chrono uh, chronological, but it is more thematic, and that's ultimately what I want to make sure that we understand here. Matthew's account, by the way, all four Gospels record this event. But they all come at it from different perspectives, just like any of us would if we were eyewitness accounts. We would record things a little differently, what we were impacted with, what we saw, and what we understood the significance to be based on what we are trying to share in our particular gospel, if that was the case. Matthew's account emphasizes Jesus' compassion on the multitude, so we see him healing. Mark's gospel emphasizes that they were sheep without a shepherd, and so Jesus teaches them as well as um, he says that he has compassion on them. Luke's account emphasizes the miracle itself, but John here 
emphasizes more the thematic significance, and we find that in particular because he's the only one that actually also has a discourse recorded for us that goes back to this particular miracle. He's the one that shows the significance of what is going on here, okay? That he ultimately is the bread of life. So it's only John that gives us this, this miracle and the discourse and the significance. So we're not going to emphasize the discourse today. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. We'll touch on it. We'll bring some of it back to help us understand, but we'll wait for that. Secondly, look, look at verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The crowd is following Jesus, but once again, for all the wrong reasons. You might want to write down John 2, 23 through 25. Interesting how we go back to that passage again. And in that passage, if you remember, here's what it says. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is a year before this, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And what was going on there is that there was this appearance of belief. But it was superficial. They were following him. They were listening to him. They were attracted to him, not because of what he was saying, but because of his miracles. And, and so this is a reference back to that same kind of people. Here we are again. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So here we have superficial faith. Verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And so the emphasis in John's gospel is on the lesson Jesus is giving the disciples and ultimately the reader, that's us, regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. John is presenting Christ, his person, his, his work. He wants us to see the evidence, and in that he wants us to believe. And the end of that would be life. Okay, so this was, this was also emphasized here because this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. So he's wanting them to grow. This is a time for teaching. This is a time for on-the-job training. That's what he did with the disciples. He taught them, sent them, solved the problem, go minister, come back and let's talk. So this is all the kind of dynamic that's taking place here, and John is revealing some of that. And then look at verse 4. This is all background kind of set-up stuff that we're given here by John. John makes it clear that it was the time of the Passover. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So he inserts that there for a reason. It gives us some understanding. It gives us an understanding as to why there were so many people around. I mean, you don't just kind of like, you know, start walking, and all of a sudden, boom, there's 5,000 people that show up. There are people on a journey. They were on their way to Jerusalem. They're on a pilgrimage. And if you've ever been to Israel, um, in particular around Galilee, you'll know that in order to get to Jerusalem, if you're coming from the north country, you all have to kind of converge in on Galilee and then ultimately go down Jerusalem. Back in Christ's day, that's what you had to do. Now you have roads that go down the coast, but the coast was very marshy. So you'd have to come all the way in, into Galilee. So you had all these people from different areas, different you might want to say countries, and even different dialects coming into Galilee, gathering together, ultimately going down to Jerusalem. So that's why there's so many people at this time. And that's why if Jesus starts doing what he's doing, that people start catching it, and they're seeing it, and they're following, and they're listening. All right, secondly, because it's Passover, um, D.A. Carson you know, reminds us that for, for them, Passover was very much like our July 4th. It was a time for nationalist celebration, which for Israel was a religious thing, right? 
And so there was this national zeal, so to speak, this religious zeal, this political frenzy kind of a mode. We're going to worship our God, to celebrate Passover, but there's also this political element here that ultimately gives a little bit of a window of understanding as to why these people, after Jesus did what he did, wanted to do what? Make him king. Okay, so you have this kind of political stuff that's kind of hovering in the background that does fashion and shape our understanding of what's going on in this text. So, as we go now to the rest of the text, we'll see how John reveals Jesus as the all-sufficient provider for his people, and he's going to give us four pictures, so to speak. We're going to see Jesus as teacher, first of all. We're going to see Jesus then as sustainer. We're going to see him as economist, and then as prophet, as teacher, sustainer, economist, and prophet. So, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us right now. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of going through your word once again. I ask, Lord, that as we ponder this text of scripture, that your Holy Spirit will reveal to us your truth. And Lord, what we, uh, we know not, Lord, we ask that you would teach us and What we are not, Lord, we ask that you would make us. And what we have not, Lord, we ask that you would give it to us. We want to learn today, Lord. We we want to, to, to feed on the food that you have given. So, Lord, give us strength and help us, Lord, to receive. And allow me as your messenger simply to be that mouthpiece, Lord, so that your word and your heart can be heard and understood. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. All right, let's jump then, first of all. Um, We want to see Jesus as teacher. As teacher, Jesus is testing his disciples. That's what he's doing. Did you catch that in the text? He's up in this high place around uh, the the, the Sea of Galilee. These mountains shoot up real high, um, real fast, um, and uh, he asks a question. Look at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So here's the problem simply stated. Um, I think it's pretty clear. The crowd had gathered because they had followed Jesus all day, gleaning from some of the other accounts. Jesus had compassion. He was healing the sick. Um, He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and so he's also teaching them, and he's healing them. Um, And then he turns to Philip, and he says, where are these people to go? to buy bread so that they may eat. He asks Philip that question because Philip was from that area. If there's anyone that knows the area, it's probably someone who grew up in that area and would know where you're supposed to get food. But it's still kind of a strange question, is it not? Why would Jesus ask such a question? Well, ultimately, we're told in the text, it says he wanted to test Philip and ultimately the disciples. So this was an opportunity to get Philip and the the disciples to think, ultimately because of the uh, impossibility of the situation, um, to think about where their sufficiency rests. Now let me ask you a question. Have the disciples already seen Jesus perform miracles? They've seen him turn water into wine. Anything else that they've seen? Tell me. This is audience participation. Healing. Say what? Healing the, the, the layman at uh, the pool of Bethesda, right? 
I mean, John hasn't given us all the details, and like I told you, there's a whole chunk of stuff that's taken place that is not recorded in John here. It's recorded in the other Gospels. They've seen him perform miracle after miracle after miracle. Okay. But Jesus still wants to teach them something. Some miracles seem like, wow, that's really incredible. But you come into a new situation like, how in the world are we going to do this? How in the world are, are, you know, is God going to intervene in, in this situation? I think that's what we have here. We have a very unusual, very overwhelming kind of a question that Jesus asks. If you think about it, if there's 5,000 men, specifically the pastor says men, but they also have their wives and their children and probably their animals too, you have a lot of people, anywhere from 15 to 25,000. That's a lot of people. How in the world are we going to feed all those people? How are we going to take care of them, Jesus says. Well, notice Philip's answer. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, a denarii was basically what a laborer would get for one day's work. So that's about eight months worth or so of, of that. So he's saying, listen, even if I had eight months' salary, we still wouldn't even be able to provide crumbs for everyone. It's just a mass of people. And, and his answer basically is a non-answer. You understand that? He's not actually saying, well, maybe if we did have, you know, 200 denarii, we could. No, it's like, it's, this is a non-answer. It's, it's impossible. This is a ridiculous question. There's no way, absolutely no way that we have enough money to buy enough food or even that, that enough food even exists around here to feed these people. There's absolutely no way it can happen. It just can't be done. And then one of the, his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, um, um, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many? Jesus is testing his disciples to show them what? To show them their inadequacy. To show them that they don't have the means to answer this question or to solve the problem. They don't have the money. They don't actually have the food. Whatever they've come up with, whatever ideas they have, does not solve the problem. This is an enormous obstacle, an enormous problem, an, an, an enormous issue that they have that they do not have the answer for. And so Jesus is testing them to show that inadequacy and ultimately that he is their only solution. Uh, as you've heard, this week we went to the, together for the gospel conference, um, and there was between seven and 8,000 men, and we all had to eat. We did, and we had to all eat multiple times, and we're going from an arena, and everyone's going out to go find places to eat. Now, some people went to restaurants, but many, if not most, had bought vouchers for the conference, and we all kind of marched down toward this convention center area, and they had this big room where they had all these, this, these tables set out, and they had a whole bunch of different rows where you could pick up your food, and you could go, and actually, all purposes. It was a very, very smooth process, but it involves so many people. And that's just between five and, or between seven and eight thousand. And that's seven and eight thousand pastors who are always treating each other with kindness and opening doors for each other and, and never saving places or cutting in or taking too much food, right? 
um, we're, we're talking about, you know, the, the kind of stuff that just takes a lot of detail, a lot of organization, a lot of resources to accomplish. So this is no small thing that Jesus is asking. That's the point I'm trying to stress here. This is a huge problem. How in the world is it going to be solved? And the disciples are saying, I don't know. I can't do it. I don't have the ability to do it. Now, Jesus uses events of our lives to teach us our inadequacy. Let's walk through a few of those, all right? It could be a bill that you get in the mail, and you're saying to yourself, I don't have enough money to pay this. Anyone ever been there? Yeah? There's absolutely no, I, I mean, it's literally, I do not have the money, God, you're going to have to provide. Now, that's, that's how, you know, he wants you to respond, but sometimes we get the bill, and what do we do? We start panicking, we start worrying and wringing our hands, and how's this going to happen? And God simply wants you to turn it over to him. All right? Maybe the, the problem is a problem you're having at home with the children or your, or your spouse, and, and you're thinking to yourself, what is happening to me, to my family, to my marriage? How will I ever survive? Or you turn it over to God and you say, confessing your inadequacy, I just don't know what to do. Or maybe it's a problem at work. It's a coworker. Maybe it's the fact that you have so much work and you're, you're thinking to yourself, I'm just going to have to stay longer. I'm going to have to work harder. and It's going to have to be more hours. I'll have to be gone on the weekend. Or maybe you go to God. You say, God, I need wisdom. I need direction here. I need for you to intervene in some way, shape, or form. Have you ever been there? I remember when I went to Russia a number of years ago. I think I've told the story to you guys, but we, we went to one town called Kirochepetsk, and we were uh, on a 13-hour journey from there to the city of Ufa, where we were going to end up. And we went through just countryside, just wild countryside. And as we were going in this really little car, a Lada, um, with lots of suitcases and no place to sit, I mean, we're just on our side like this. So 13 hours, just like this, right? It, it's raining, and of course, the car breaks down. Okay? Now, it's probably the first time I really had a moment in my life where I just kind of said, there's absolutely nothing I can do. Number one, I'm not a mechanic. Number two, if I were a mechanic, it's a lot of, so I have no idea how to do that, right? I don't speak the language. I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't use my cell phone. You know, I, I, I can't get it. I have to trust the person who's driving the car and ultimately God who is God of the situation. Can I tell you something? That was a great experience for me to go through. It is good when we are at at a place when we are, so to speak, at the lowest of the low, when we're saying to ourselves, I can't do anything. The only thing I can do is turn to you. Now that, friends, is not saying that you have failed and that you you haven't exercised your resources well enough that you have to turn to God. That's exactly what he wants you to do in the first place. It's a good place to be. It's not a failure to be there. And sometimes it's a matter of pride on our, on our side to not allow ourselves to come to God and say, God, I need your help. In fact, I think we have two practical hindrances here that come out of um, really Philip and his example in this story, a pride of, 
of knowledge. There's always the potential for a pride of knowledge to get in the way and also a, 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 really a head for numbers. And let's just think through this a little bit. This pride of knowledge says, hey, I, I can get out of this mess. <laughs> I've done it before, and I'll do it again. Jesus wants me to use my head, doesn't he? I mean, it's that kind of a practical business-oriented kind of a thing. Hey, I'm stuck behind this thing. You know, well, hey, problems don't exist. We just find our way to get around the problem, and once we get around the problem, the problem is no longer there, right? Because I've been given the skills, and I can do that. Well, yeah, that's pride. And oftentimes that kind of pride gets in the way of us saying, God, this problem's huge. I need your help. And it's just this kind of business psychology thing that just kind of you try and apply. And it's, friends, it's, it's nonsense because God wants to be the one who satisfies and provides for us. So pride of knowledge is one thing. And also a head for numbers. Um, if we're so consumed with numbers... If we're so consumed with how much money we have in the bank uh, and, and, and it's like, well, we're going to be gracious only if we have this money or we're going to do something for God only because we have this money, then we have our, our, our mind in the numbers games. And we're trying to figure it out. Well, I'll see if I can do this and calculate it out and see, okay, if it's in the budget, you know, the number's still there. Okay, it's still, you know, it's like, oh, it went down. I'll have to change something in the budget. You know, and, and we're so, we know exactly where everything's going and how it's going to fit together. It's like, okay, now I can trust God. Now I can do his will because our trusting is in the numbers. And that can get in the way of us saying, God, here's this problem. I need your help. I, I can do nothing. You see, he's more concerned about, see, like one denarii is about 200, you know. He, he's figuring numbers here, and he he's, has a knowledge of the area. Listen, Philip, you don't know, and you can't do it. And I want you to learn that lesson because I am the answer. I am the solution. I am what you need. Both of these realities can and will undermine a church's mission and vision, will they not? So we must use our knowledge and have a, have a real head for knowledge, but all under the care and the counsel and the direction and the guidance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Too many a church has, has made a decision based on numbers that has undermined its freedom and its ability to do what God has called it to do. And I don't mean just be foolish and just say, well, we're going to exercise faith without thinking it through. No, God wants us to be wise. But sometimes we panic so much, like, well, how much money did we get in the bank today? Okay, all right. Whew. Oh, man. Listen, do we not have a great God? And does he not provide They are not a substitute for Jesus, and oftentimes that's how we treat them. Okay? So that's Jesus as teacher. He's testing his disciples, and ultimately they're saying there's just absolutely no way. There's no way this can happen. Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus as sustainer is satisfying the hungry. Now, there certainly is the physical dynamic here, and we want to see that, that he does supply physically the food for the multitude that is there, but there is certainly a bigger story going on here that Jesus is communicating. First thing I want us to note, though, is this. Um, there is this beautiful picture here of Christ's sovereignty over our trials. Did you catch what was said there in the last verse? He knew what he would do. He asked this question to test Philip, but what? What does John tell us? Jesus already knew what he was going to do. You say, oh, 
That's real nice, Jesus. But see, isn't that the way? He already knows what he's going to do. He already knows how he's going to solve the problem. I mean, there's no surprises with him. It's not like he's up sitting in heaven and is like, oh, man, I had no idea that was going to happen. I'm going to have to jump down in there and kind of intervene and stir some things up and fix it. No, he already knows what's going on. If you believe in a sovereign God, you also believe that that sovereign God is sovereignly at work in this world. And he's accomplishing his purposes, and my sin and my obedience don't thwart whether he accomplishes his purposes or not, because he does what he does because he's God, and he chooses to do it. So your problem and your trial has already been determined from, from him, and he already knows what he is going to do and how he's going to accomplish meeting that particular need. Now, friends, it's such a beautiful reality when we think, okay, I've got this huge problem, and guess what? God already has a solution. But what he wants me to do now is to rest on him and to trust him and to seek his wisdom and guidance so that I can be the means by which or I can, I can go along with whatever way he chooses to accomplish his purposes. And sometimes that means me simply adjusting myself to what he wants. He knows what he's doing. Now, just think about your trial as an archway. And before you walk under this archway, it says, hmm, I'm going to read this now. All right, we're, gonna, we're going to have this, uh, oh, where are we going to get the resources from? All right, so here, here's the question to Philip. How are you going to feed these people? On this side, it says this. As you walk through and you look back, <laughs> Philip looks on the other side and says what? He knew what he was going to do. That's the way he works with us, right? Here's this big problem. On top of that arch, it says, you know, your family's falling apart. On the other side, it says he knew what he was doing. It says on the one side, you know, that, that bill's come in the mail. You don't have the money to supply it. On the other side, it says he knew what he was doing all along. And how many times have you looked back in your life and say, ah, he worked there, 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 and I had no idea he was going to come in that way. That's because he already knew what he was going to do. So this wonderful picture of Jesus as our sovereign sustainer, but there's also this beautiful picture of him as the satisfying sustainer, which is really what we have next in verse 10 and following. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, (laughs) let's just say it was 20,000. You try and get 20,000 people to sit down. Now, it doesn't say here so much, but in the other accounts, it says, and they, they sat by 50s and 100s. You know, so you can see, you know, there's Andrew out there going, that's one, two, three, four, five. You over here, please sit here in a row. Nice, neat rows. But we have no idea why. But our master said, have everyone sit down in all these rows and blocks of 50 and 100. Okay, what's next? I mean, you, you see how this is unfolding here. Jesus already knows what he's doing. And we are kind of going along for the ride, not knowing exactly what's going to happen yet. Have you ever been there? It's like, okay, I'm going down here. Not sure what this looks like, but I'll go along with you. Okay. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So all the fish, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. So Jesus sees man's need. 
He satisfies man's need through the bread. He uses us as vehicles, the means of satisfying others' needs. But all glory ultimately is rooted in Jesus, the source of that satisfaction. So he uses means to do his will. He uses the disciples, he uses the poor boy, and he ultimately will use us to accomplish his purposes. He uses means that are insignificant and insufficient and makes them significant and sufficient. Let me say that again because we're talking about us. He uses means like us that are insignificant and insufficient. And he makes them significant and sufficient. In other words, he takes people like you and me that are pretty well insignificant. Most of us are not going to be on Channel 7 News tonight, right? We don't have Time Magazine coming and doing interviews on us, right? We don't, we're not going to be highlighted on entertainment tonight. That's not us. We're just run-of-the-mill, normal people. And I hope that doesn't blow you away, okay? Okay. Um, some of you are really special, but <laughs> that's just to make sure you still love me, okay? He uses five loaves and two fish. Now, just, just think about just the silliness of this picture. 20,000 people, and you got five loaves and three fi- or two fish. And what are you going to do with that, Jesus? You're going to feed the multitude. <laughs> okay. Takes it breaks it, gives thanks for it, and just starts handing it over, handing it over, handing it over. And they go and they start distributing it, and everyone is fed. Now, it's not as if Andrew comes running from the crowd with this boy, like, you know, 20 feet behind him, but he's got this bag, and he comes up to Jesus and says, look what I've got. I've got a feeding the 5,000 starter kit. It's just something incredibly insignificant. It's the poorest kind of food that you could have. This is is poor man's food. It's barley loaves and just some kippers in there or something like that, just dried. and, And Jesus takes it and he multiplies it and he ultimately feeds the people that are there. Listen, this is no new message throughout Scripture. Just listen as I go through some stories and just kind of pick up some of the same themes. Out of nothing, he creates the heavens and the earth. Out of the dust of the ground, he fashions man. With a jawbone of a donkey, because of his power, it becomes a mighty weapon in the hand of Samson, the judge of Israel, to kill thousands of Philistines. A jar of oil satisfies the need for a widow when a prophet is visiting. A shepherd's rod becomes a tool in the hands of Moses to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in parting the sea. A sling in the hand of David, not just due to David's own skill, I might add. God is always sovereign even when we are exercising our skillfulness for his glory. A young virgin who would father the savior of the world. Twelve rabble, quarreling, 
and ignorant men lay the foundation of God's church. He uses all that. And he uses you and me as vehicles to build the growing kingdom of God. See, this is, this is just insignificance in the hands of the creator, the sustainer, the provider of the world becomes something significant for his glory. Now, little note to self here. This is a note to myself. All right? It is not the magnitude or greatness of our meager resources that is the issue. The best that you and I have to offer is still totally insignificant and insufficient. It doesn't matter whether you have a PhD, whether you're still in junior high. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You've got millions. You've just got hundreds or cents, whatever it might be. It doesn't matter. God is not impressed with what you think is, look what I have, because in God's eyes, it is insufficient. The only thing that is sufficient is him, and he takes what is insignificant and makes it significant. He takes what's insufficient and makes it sufficient. And friends, looking around this room, there's a lot of insignificance and there's a lot of insufficiency. I do not mean that to be rude. God provides for us in mundane ways that often we have no idea are going to take place. Second note to self, it is only the hand into which those resources are placed that is the real issue. So what do you have that is already God's that he wants you to turn over to him to use? Fill in the blank. Money, time, music ability, home, your mind, your voice, your gifts, your education, your connections. Something might look or seem totally hopeless and useless, but Jesus makes it the beginning point of his help to you. Sometimes it comes in the form of stuff, things, or sometimes it comes in the form of people. Have you ever had God use a person in your life that you thought there's no way this person's ever going to really have an impact on me? And out of nowhere, boom, they come. For some of you teachers, it could be a student. It could be that angry parent that likes to email you or set up lots of conferences. It could be you know, another church member that just might want to say is, is kind of a leech of your time and energy. And you're just like, oh, they're walking up to me. And you're thinking, you know, what are my exit strategies? And yet God is using that person to teach you and to, to shape you and to identify something that you need in your life. And he is providing for you through that person. It's not what you expect. But God is this sovereign and sufficient provider for his people. He did it certainly with the food, the natural physical food, but ultimately it is the spiritual dynamic that he wants to emphasize here for us today. He provides for us spiritually with himself to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish in us. 
Now here's the third thing. The last two are not going to be quite as, as long. And you're saying amen to that. I want you to notice Jesus as economist. As economist, Jesus is maximizing his resources. This might sound similar, but I want you just to follow along here. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. What starts out as five barley loaves and two fish becomes, in the hands of our Savior, an abundant supply of food enough to feed 20,000 people. And there's enough for leftovers for all of you men out there who want to have second helpings. There's leftovers. How can you have leftovers from five loaves and two fish? See, we, we know the story so well, it just doesn't, doesn't kind of blow us away. There are 12 baskets full of leftovers here. Now, scholars have said, you know, they, they think you know, there's an interpretation here with the 12, and it's referring to the 12 tribes of Israel because this is kind of a, a New Testament picture of what Moses did in the Old Testament in providing and feeding the 12 tribes. And I think there's an element of truth to that, um, even because of what is said at the end here about they saw him as a prophet, and there's a connection there. And in fact, if you go back to chapter 5, what's one of the last things that Jesus says to the Pharisees when they are holding him on trial, and he's putting himself on trial, he ultimately says, Moses is your judge, right? So there might even be a thematic connection here to kind of bring some parallelism. But I, I really think the 12 baskets ultimately are driving at what's taking place at that moment with the disciples because there's 12 of them. And as the disciples are going around picking up the scraps, however that was, I don't know if it was just thrown on the ground. I think it's just the leftovers and baskets gathering them together. What are they thinking to themselves? What's going on in their head? I don't know. We're not told. But it's probably not like, yeah, I told you so. Yeah, you know, that's good. Oh, great, we have more food for us to eat now. Yeah. No, they're just stunned. They're numb. And probably pretty tired. All right, getting all the people together, getting all the food out there, and now they're gathering it up. But they're probably thinking this. What we have witnessed is the most amazing miracle of all. What was no way has become yes way. What was no we can't, using contemporary language here, has become yes he can. We have seen our master accomplish an incredible miracle here. Jesus is efficient and abundant as an economist. Get this, his grace and mercy are always sufficient. They do not run out. His spiritual resources are always in abundance for his children. They do not run out. We are able to eat as much as we want and have our fill. He says, here I am. Take me. Chew on me. Absorb me. Satisfy yourself with me. You will not run out of the bread of life. There's more and more and more and more for you. 
And when we're going through times of trial and testing, God's resources are always present and always in abundance. He provides for us. He, he is present with us. His promises are sure. His power is at work. His purposes are always the priority. And he says, let nothing be lost or wasted. He doesn't even want anything left or or just kind of thrown by the wayside. He is totally and completely efficient. Not like us. He doesn't let anything go. He is an efficient, sovereign provider who knows what he is doing. But at times, we may have our doubts. Let me just tell you, just remind you of two stories from the Old Testament. The first one is Moses. Moses was the, an Israelite, little baby boy, slave, put in the water by mom and sister, snatched up by Pharaoh's daughter, brought into the royal family of Egypt, and there he grew up. And when he was older, he saw the injustice that was kind of taking place with the, the Israelites. He understood where he came from, and ultimately, in his anger, he killed an Egyptian, and as a result of that murder, he fled And he went into the wilderness. And for the next 40 or so years, he herded sheep, got married, herded sheep, wandered around the wilderness. And you're asking yourself the question, why would God allow such a significant circumstance and allow him to leave? Why wouldn't he just allow him to stay in that royal family so that he could be an influence in that particular context? Now, there are times when God does stuff like that. For example, with with Daniel. He he brings him right into this kind of a leadership position in Babylon. He's one of the the special men that were brought in captivity, but he was given a place of honor, and God used that, and he worked his way up. And here's here's Moses, who's in the royal family. His father is Pharaoh. And yet, he murders and goes off in the wilderness for 40 years. What a waste. Now, we know the end of the story. But can you imagine? It's like, well, where's Pharaoh? What's he doing in the wilderness? What's he walking around there? Herding sheep. Feeding sheep. Navigating the terrain. And then he has this burning bush experience, and God says, go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, right? Takes the multitude of God's flock into the wilderness. And what does Moses do for the next 40 years? Leads sheep. Helps them eat food that God provides for them. Figures out how to survive the terrain. What seemed like a waste, might want to say, was all part of God's preparation for accomplishing his purposes. What about Joseph? You know the story of Joseph so well. Yes, I know he was given a coat of many colors. Yes, I know that he was the most loved of Israel's sons um, and seemingly was a little bit arrogant. His brothers took him, faked his death, sold him into slavery. He finds himself in Potiphar's house and actually does really well there. Raises up to the position of you know, the head manager of the household, of, of the estate. That's a pretty big job. 
And he does a very, very good job, but Potiphar's wife thinks he's cute, pursues him, tries to seduce him. He will have none of it, runs away ultimately, and she accuses him of attempted rape. And he's thrown in jail. And you're saying to yourself, no, 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 this story can't go this way. And he's in jail for 13 years. And it's not until 13 years later when Pharaoh cannot figure out his dream that he's having and his wise men can't help him at all that they find out about this guy who was in prison who was able to interpret dreams. And so he calls him up and he interprets the dream. And not only does he interpret the dream, but he also says, this is what you need to do in preparation for the interpretation of the dream and the famine that's going to come. So Pharaoh says, hey, you're going to come and you're going to be my second man. Now, see, we would have figured out that story, right? We would have figured out the process and the way in which he would get there and ultimately be second in command. Absolutely. But all the while, even during this trial, even during the difficulty, God is preparing Joseph for the job ultimately that he has for him to do as second in command, ultimately the head manager of Egypt. Now, friends, God takes insignificant people and accomplishes his will through them. Not always like Moses as leaders, not always like Joseph in that kind of circumstance, but you can put yourself in the context and say, God is at work in me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has a purpose for your life? Do you believe that he wants to work that purpose in there? Now, it may not be. You may not be second in command in Egypt. You may be second in command in your home. And there's only two of you. But that's God's purpose. But he wants to work through you, and he will work through you. Now, think about it. As far as Moses is concerned, I mean, who, who better to lead God's children out of Egypt than an outcast murderer with a speech impediment, right? And you think you had it bad. God is not through with you. He's not through with us at all. What, we might, what might seem to us like a waste is not a waste in God's eyes. Now, it might be easier for us to talk about John 6 and um, Genesis chapter sorry, Genesis chapter 41 and Exodus 2, along those lines. Um, but when we look at our lives and say, uh, it's kind of hard to connect. And maybe it's because you feel derailed, you feel shelved, you feel incapacitated. Now, I'm just going to go through some things here that may be true. You may feel that you failed God so miserably, there's no way that he could use someone like you. I would just encourage you, friends, think again think again. It may be that you feel like your giftedness is so inadequate, so insufficient for any task that God is, you know, for any of God's recruiting for you. Just think again. You may think that life is over. You're in the retirement years, and you're kind of, you're a has-been. You don't have much to offer. Friends, please, please think again. My, my son asked me some questions about retirement, you know, yesterday or so, and I just, I, I think that we in our country have it wrong, that retirement is supposed to be this time where we just enjoy ourselves and do what we want. And I, I, I think we need to, to rethink that in God's eyes. God gives us freedom 
to serve him, to be used by him for his glory. And just think about it. You're, you're getting income from the government, whatever that looks like, or a pension that adds it. You have free time to do what you want. I know there's family, but God says, listen, I've given you all this. Go, serve, be used. But we have this American cultural idea that kind of gets in the way. And I just, I just like for you to think through that. You may think that, you, that your disease or your financial situation, your daily grind, the simple, you know, going through the everydays of life with little kids and the struggle that that might have. It's just, God, how can you use me? Friends, he is at work. Even through those mundane or those difficult circumstances, he is at work. And it may seem like not much is happening, but he is at work, and he is going to be at work in your life. He doesn't put anyone on the shelf. You are not a waste in his eyes. All he wants is a willing servant to say, use me. With all my weaknesses, my frailties, use me. Remember, he knows what he's doing. I do need to hurry up here for your benefit. As prophet, Jesus is signifying his deity. I, I think this is absolutely incredible. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the, the prophet who is to come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so here, this is this crowd. They've experienced his compassion. They've experienced the healings. They've experienced the food. And, and they're reminded of Moses, reminded of that, that prophet and, and the promise that there would be one like Moses, a prophet that was going to come. And, and so they're connecting the dots there, and, and rightfully so, but the application of that is wrong. Is Jesus ultimately the prophet? Yes. But not like they want him to be. And this is often the case, is that people want a Jesus of their own making. And this crowd wants him to come and to be king. They want to overthrow Rome. And they want him to provide food for them every day, every day, every day, every day. We now have our prophet. We now have our satisfier. We now have the one who can meet those needs. Oh, yes. And friends, this is the lie of the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd. Because although does, God does give us wisdom to live this life he never promises that we are going to be abundant physically and financially in this world does he those promises are always promises that are talking about what the future has in store for us when we are in his presence in heaven but when we make them the here and now we wrench what god says out of its context and ultimately what we're trying to do is satisfy our own selfish desires and using him as our genie so to speak to accomplish our purposes in fact scripture is very very clear you will have trials there will be persecution you will get sick but i'm lord of all that i'm sovereign and I work through that to accomplish my will. And there are some of you right now who are struggling with illness. You're struggling with sickness, and every day is a fight to get through, and the strength isn't there. Some of you are struggling with finances, and every day is like, Lord, how am I gonna, how am I gonna do this? And friends, all of that is part of God's purpose and plan to work through you and ultimately to, to bring glory to himself 
because he will demonstrate himself through your trial. We have that promise over and over and over again through Scripture. Now, um, let's, let's jump to the end here to these concluding statements that I have. Ultimately, Jesus is the bread of life um, that came down from heaven. That's, uh, we're going to get to that in the discourse, but think through these final thoughts. I've taken his words and, and some of the things that have been said about Jesus to come up with these concluding thoughts. Just kind of things for you to ponder as you leave. Number one, um, where are we to buy bread? Where are we to buy bread? What obstacle or obstacles are you facing that God is saying to you right now, turn it over to me? Your job? Your family member? could be a child. could be a spouse. could be an uncle, aunt. Your home? Your mortgage? Your illness? Maybe it's a sin issue that seems to constantly defeat you. He says... Where are you going to buy bread? Here, here's the problem that is so overwhelming. Will you turn to me? Secondly, um, John says that he knew what he was doing. So I'm saying, Jesus is saying, I know what I'm doing. So embrace that teaching that is found in this passage that he is sovereign, and he's sovereign even over your situation. I just Friends, if, if we could all grasp that reality that he is sovereign through this trial or through this difficulty or through this struggle, it helps us so much to be able to turn things over to him. The third thing is this. Have the people sit down. Let me say that. Has, has he ever asked you to do something that you're just like, I don't understand why you want me to do that. It doesn't make any sense. But the disciples do what he says. And the point here is this. Jesus has a plan and is simply asking for your complete and total obedience, even when it seems impossible or overwhelming. And the last one is this, gather up the leftover fragments. <laughs> you are not a waste in his eyes. He is at work in your life, through your life, for his glory. There's so much more to say, and yet I, I just want to kind of maybe bring it down to this one statement. Will you listen and worship him as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, your totally sovereign and sufficient provider. He's the bread of life. He's the bread of life that's given to us. He is the one that satisfies. Lord, we have, we have walked through this text of Scripture, and Lord, I, I ask that anything that I may have said that may be confusing or may be an error, Lord, would be stripped away and that we would be able to see the rawness of what it is that you desire for us to see. That we see you as one who is teaching us, and that teaching involves testing and trial and difficulty, and yet, Lord, you, you want us to grow. You want us to think, and you want us to think about you. Lord, as sustainer, you want us to be satisfied with that which you offer, and that is yourself. As economists, Lord, we are reminded that as you use your resources, Lord, you never waste a thing. You're always efficient. You know what you're doing. And Lord, as prophet, you want us to worship you as you truly are, not as we have or our desire to create you. So Lord, help us to conform ourselves to your purposes, to allow you to do what you desire to do in us. And Lord, ultimately that we would see that it is only through you, it is only from you, 
that satisfaction truly comes, that you are the bread of life, and that we ultimately can feed on you. And Lord, we do that for the rest of our lives with joy and with passion and for your glory. Help us, Lord, to apply these truths, to have your Holy Spirit, to have freedom, to, to enter areas of our heart, Lord, where we may, may be struggling. We ask this in your precious name.